Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You talk to hundreds of people in tech, um, like... What proportion of them fall into this category where you see them as uh, activists or trying to improve things? It can be hard to identify them because I think a lot of the executives have learned how to talk like they are ethical technologists. Um, but you really have to look at, at actions. I mean, one of the, one of the principles I, I look at in the book is this idea of consequentialism, of sort of the the need for technologists to kind of measure their success not based on how they intended their products to work but on how their products actually work out in the world when you say you know mark zuckerberg your you know your newsfeed algorithm is is you know tearing society apart or leading to more polarization the fallback response is always well you know we built this with good intentions and what i'm trying to tell people is like it doesn't matter like your intentions are, are it's good that if they're good but what ultimately matters is how this technology is applied out in the world. And, you know, it's a very strange standard, man. Like if, if I'm a doctor and then I do something messed up and then, um, you know, it's like, I, you know, like whatever, I operate on the wrong leg and then there'd be like, hey, that was the wrong leg. Be like, well, I intended it to be the right leg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. That, that's, not, that's not exactly like a compelling uh, argument in just about any field. Right. But you hear that all the time in tech. And I think it's really ingrained in them that as long as you have good intentions, your job is just to create the technology and how people use it is up to them. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. It's good to be with y'all. Hope you're all holding up okay. This is Zach Grauman, one of the co-hosts of Yang Speaks. Look, we're going to do two things today on this episode. Number one, we've got Kevin Roos joining with Andrew for a conversation. Kevin Roos is a New York Times tech columnist and was the first reporter to write an article about Andrew Yang as a presidential candidate. First, he called him a longer than long shot. And I've joked with Kevin since then. I was like, thank you for doing that because that was just motivation. He jokes, but like, we laugh at me. He's like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't call him that. I'm not sure. But I blew that quote up and I put it on the campaign HQ wall. And I said, team, that's our floor. Um, and it was funny because we went from long and the long shot to uh, 538 called as a semi-serious candidate. And then we were called a candidate by CNN. And then we were uh, a major candidate by 538. And then it was all the crazy headlines you've seen over the years of us running. So Kevin Roos, the man who started it all, 
he's got some really insightful stuff on the internet and YouTube algorithms and how they're fueling the far right and far left and making us more divided. Um, he's a pretty insightful guy and Andrew and him are cut from similar cloths in that sense. So I hope you enjoy that. Before we do that, I want to give you all a breakdown on the record-breaking stimulus package that was just passed by the Biden administration. I'm going to break down exactly what's in it, and then I'm going to talk about our opinions, the Yang view. So breakdown of the American Rescue Plan for coronavirus relief that was just passed starts right now. All right, what is in the new American Rescue Plan just passed by the Joe Biden administration? The American Rescue Plan is a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill with five main components. I'm gonna break them all down very quickly. Number one, most importantly, $1,400 stimulus checks to the people. We hope for $2,000, they said it's a, you know, if you combine the $600 we got earlier, it's 2,000, whatever, we'll take what we can get. So if you make under $75,000 a year, or a married couple making under $150,000 per year, you are eligible. And what does that mean? It's $1,400 per person and $1,400 per dependent. So kids, people that are dependent on others for their income, according to your 2020 tax return last year. Number two, so that's number one. Number two, it's going to continue the $300 per week boost to unemployment checks through September of 2021. So if you lost your job and you filed for unemployment, this is solid money in addition to what you can get. So normally, depending on the state, you can get $100 to $500 per week in unemployment benefits. And this is $300 stacked on top of that. Um, and then they're going to waive your federal income taxes on that money up to the first $10,200 for households earning under $150,000. So if your household earns under $150K, you don't pay taxes on this money either. Number three. There's a lot of tax credits here, specifically the child tax credit in 2021. So we don't love tax credits, guys. I think the hardest part of them is that you have to actually file taxes and, many, and they have to file them right. Many people don't know how to do that, but it is better than nothing. So right now you can get a $2,000 tax credit per child up to age 17. That is gonna go up to $3,600 for children up to age five and as much as $3,000 for children six to 17. Probably gets complicated, it's taxes, but they are expanding the eligibility here. And in the second half of the year, they're gonna give advanced payments of this, which is good. One of the problems with tax credits is it's complicated and you don't get the money for a while when you actually need it. So ideally, a lot of this is gonna to get to families soon. It's like a UBI almost for families with children. Very cool, theoretically. They're also gonna expand child independent care tax credits uh, you're going to earn income tax credits for workers without children in 2021 and then exempting student loan forgiveness from your income through 2025. So a lot of tax income and tax credit expansions. Number four, money to fight the pandemic, which is big. This is going to help state schools, local governments. So they're going to have money for COVID fighting. So that includes vaccine distribution, coronavirus testing, contact tracing, genomic sequencing, things like that. And then money for FEMA, which is our disaster relief organization at the federal level, which is good. And then $350 billion are going to states and local governments. So that includes colleges and universities, includes our schools and reopening them, transit agencies, housing, childcare providers, food assistance programs, things like that. And also businesses, restaurants and live venues. It includes a bailout for multi-employer pension plans that aren't able to make their payments to workers during the pandemic. Number five, beefs up the Affordable Care Act. Regardless of what you think of it, 
It is a healthy healthcare. Millions of Americans use this to get their healthcare. Um, so it's going to increase subsidies for people buying healthcare on healthcare.gov through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. So it's billions of dollars of public health programs and veterans healthcare. And if you have heard of COBRA, which is what you um, use to keep your healthcare when you lose your job, you're covered through September of this year. So expanding that as well. So the bottom line is, guys, those are your five things. You've got your $1,400 stimulus checks to people. You've got $300 per week boost to unemployment checks. You've got expanded tax credits, particularly the child tax credit. You've got money to fight the pandemic and reopen our schools and local governments. You've got Affordable Care Act subsidies and beefing that program up for people to get health care. Couple of things. If you want to get your check, if you've already qualified for this and use direct deposit to file your taxes, you should get that soon, as soon as March 12th. We are going to post this link in our podcast description. There's a site where you can navigate the IRS and how to get your STEMI check. So get that STEMI check. It's irs.gov slash coronavirus slash get dash my dash payment. I'll just say from Yang and I's perspective, some pros and cons here. Pros. Guys, we freaking did something. Okay. You know what I'm saying? We like our government did something, which is objectively a good thing. We don't normally do things. We've been very delayed in our coronavirus response. So thank God, thank heaven, thank whoever we did something. We channeled a lot of Andrew Yang here. It's pretty exciting. There is a lot of cash relief as I just read off. So that's exciting. I feel great as a human being in terms of the impact we have had on our society, despite how desperate the situation is. So Democrats are thrilled um, because this is a big win for Joe Biden getting this done. And I think people like this by the numbers, it appears. So 62% of Americans approve how Joe Biden is handling the pandemic. That's an NPR PBS poll. Uh, Trump was at 39% for context when he left office. 61% of uh, Americans, according to CNN, approve it. So there's multiple polls saying that. And the big one, it seems that most people support what's in it, even if they don't approve Biden. Um, so 85% or 75%, depending on the poll you're looking at, support cash relief and tax credits and reopening the schools and a lot of uses of the money. So I think this is generally objectively a positive thing. So that's a big pro. A couple cons here. I know I have my libertarian Republican listeners. We love you too. We are humanity first. I think it's fair. I'm a little frustrated that we didn't get $2,000 checks, but we'll take 1400. Second thing, not a single Republican voted for this bill. Some press outlets have called this the end of bipartisanship. I'm not sure if that's true, but that was frustrating, um, which also made me frustrated because of the negotiation tactics used here, because the House um, original bill from the Democrats um, was actually more aggressive. And then they came down with a lot of their levels to negotiate and then not a single Republican voted. So what was the point of you should have just for if you're just going to have to force it through, you might as well get what you want. So the House originally wanted a hundred thousand dollar income minimum and a $200,000 income per couple. Uh, so that would have been better for more people. Uh, they wanted a $400 employment bump per week instead of 300. So that would have been better. A lot of people wanted the $15 minimum wage hike, but the Republicans were able to get that out. They had the ability to block it with a filibuster. That was too big of a, um, a move here. So I'm not sure what you think of the $15 minimum wage. We are more UBI than $15 minimum wage, but we are pro money in people's hands. So generally for paying workers more if you can do it realistically. But that was not included in this package, although there are a lot of headlines on it. Hopefully, many of you are getting a stimmy check um, and hopefully it's going to good use in a time where we all could use it. So now, sit back, relax. Kevin Roos is joining Yang Speaks. I am so excited to welcome to the podcast my friend, the author, Newark 
Times tech columnist Kevin Roos. Kevin, welcome. Andrew, thank you for having me. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been too long. So Kevin wrote this book. I'm probably going to do this multiple times, but it's called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. So you can see why I'm eager to talk to Kevin because this is so up my alley. So my alley, I actually even gave a jacket quote to the book. <laughs> so, so now it is in my interest to make sure that it sells gajillions of copies. Yeah, I got the yang bump. And and I see the success of this book as a or, or failure of this book as a referendum on your, uh, your sway. <laughs> yeah, it is. Or failure. It's true. It's like everyone just leave automation alone. Love the book. Super excited for people to get their hands on it. But first, I want to retrace our steps a little bit and your steps, because I think you're uh, a great person to be delving into this topic uh, from both your professional experience, but also even some of uh, your personal origins. If you're watching uh, this or listening to this podcast, you remember the launch of my presidential campaign. There's a story in the New York Times said something like uh, the robots are coming, uh, says this guy. That was written by Kevin Roos. Kevin Roos broke the entire presidential campaign story for the New York Times in early 2018. Yeah, I still remember we um, we had a a, a sort of coffee in Dean and DeLuca, which no longer exists in the in the bottom of the New York Times building. And uh, and we had met a couple times and kept in touch. But you you said you had something to tell me. And I was like, all right, he's launching some startup. He's doing some. And you, you got we got there and um, and you sort of leaned in. And you said, like, I'm running for president. And I was kind of like president of of what? Like of your co-op? Like of the, you know, <laughs> and you said, no, like president of the United States. And I was just incredulous because you had no political profile. And I was like, that's cool. And like, how is this actually going to work? And then you proved me totally wrong um, by uh Or by I proved you right it. because you did write the story. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, so you called me a longer than long shot, which I think was empirically accurate. <laughs> You did a lot better than I thought you were going to, and I was I was remembering this morning uh, after that story ran, we were having a a New York Times tech conference out in Half Moon Bay, California, and uh, you flew out to it not as like a panelist or a, you know speaker or anything, but just as sort of an audience member. And I remember um, there was a talk going on, and 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 you raised your hand in the back of the room and asked a question, and you introduced yourself, and you said, "I'm Andrew Yang, and I'm I'm running for president to uh, give people universal basic income uh, because of automation." And there was like polite uh, chuckling in the uh, in the audience, but it's it's amazing how much has happened since then, um, and it's just been it's been wild to watch your your success and the success with which you've really put this issue on people's minds because I think before you started running um, automation AI was seen as like a very niche issue that tech people cared about but that other people didn't really know a ton about. Certainly our campaign succeeded in mainstreaming uh, the issues of of automation and um, and universal basic income as a path forward so I'm super grateful to everyone. Uh, But I am grateful to you, Kevin, because it took a a real shot of journalistic judgment uh, and vision to write that story. Uh, I remember you and I sat down. And when when we sat down, I did not think that a story was going to come out of it. I wasn't like, ooh, (laughs) I'm going to get the other Kevin. He's going to write about this. 
Um, but you had a nose for it. I remember, I think you even talked to someone on your team, maybe your editor about it. And then we're like, hey, do you want to like uh, do a story? And then, of course, at that point, I was like, heck, yes. Um, so what was that process? Did you end up pitching it to someone? Yeah, I, I pitched it to my editor. And I was like, this guy, Andrew Yang, is uh, is running for president because he's worried about the robots taking all the jobs and thinks we need universal basic income. And, you know, my editor is a, a very thoughtful guy was sort of like, so tell me why this should be a story again. <laughs> so I had to kind of like convince people that it was worth their attention because I thought, you know, even if you were a longer than long shot, um, which I thought at the time, I thought the issue was one that I had never seen a candidate run so squarely on this issue of uh, automation of technology is sort of changing the economy and how do we deal with that? So I just thought, like, I'm a tech columnist. I'm not a political journalist. I don't, you know, I don't handicap races. So I was just interested from the tech angle about the kind of way that you were trying to draw attention to this technology and how it was going to impact the workforce. Well, grateful to you, Kevin. Grateful to your editor. <laughs> that Because that article really did put us on the map. Um, I do remember the conference you were talking about, too. And I was in the back and I did raise my hand and I said, hey, I'm Andrew Young, you're running for president. Um, uh, and you're right. It was not met with raucous acclaim. <laughs> <laughs> I think people were like, how'd this guy sneak in? <laughs> Indeed, security. <laughs> Telling people privately you're running for president um, is different than after uh, an article comes out. And then it's like, well, now I'm publicly running for president. And then, you, you know, you... Um, have to make that case uh, very often. That was an adjustment for me. Actually, every stage was an adjustment. Saying it privately was an adjustment, and then saying it publicly was an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, uh, but now, but look, yeah. now look at you. You're a you're a full fledged uh, political machine. Um, um, oh well, I guess. Thank you. You and I um, knew each other prior to that, and. I think you're a singular voice on this in part because you grew up in the Midwest in Ohio, right? Yep. You experienced or at least saw firsthand uh, some of these impacts uh, on your hometown. Yeah, I grew up in, in the Rust Belt. Um, my you know county was one where there had been a lot of steel plants. And um, those closed up in the you know 70s, 80s, 90s, both because of a combination of automation and also uh, offshoring and outsourcing. And so it's been a pretty economically hard hit region by this. And that was one of the reasons I was I was interested in it. And I was also interested because, and I don't know whether you experienced this, I'm sure you did, but the conversation about AI and automation out here in Silicon Valley is is very bipolar. It's it's either everyone thinks, you know, AI is amazing and it's gonna solve all our problems and it's gonna fix climate change and cure cancer and we're all going to sort of be in this utopian society because AI is going to do all our dirty work for us. Or it's sort of like people are very dystopian, like, you know, Elon Musk and people, you know, they think we're going to get super intelligence that's going to enslave us all. And it's all very far in the future, the way they talk about it. And I was struck, you know, when I started researching this book of like how much is actually going on right now, like how much um, displacement is happening, how much AI is sort of working its way into our all of our lives. And so I was trying to sort of do the micro version of the macro argument that you had, which was like, this stuff is changing the economy. These are the policies we need, including, you know, UBI and other things. 
And I, w- I sort of thought of myself as sort of the micro version of that argument where it's like, yes, this stuff is coming. It's changing the economy. People are being displaced. So what can we as sort of non-politicians, as non-lawmakers actually do about it? How do we, you know, how do we sort of orient our careers? How do we orient our habits and our lives and our communities so that this doesn't totally catch us off guard? Well, it's one reason why I appreciate your book so much is it tries to be useful on a personal level uh, and also talk about the immediate time frame, uh, because I couldn't agree with you more that when you talk to people about this, even people that frankly should be very analytical, rigorous types, they have a tendency just to cut to some extreme statement <laughs> of, some, of, of some kind, which I found very confusing uh, and consistent when I was trying to make the case I was making. So the fact that you ran into the same thing in some ways doesn't surprise me, but it does discourage me because some time has passed. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the technology has gotten better and it's gotten more applied. So there are now companies that are automating jobs at a furious rate, and that's grown even since the pandemic. Um, there's been a huge uptick in sales of automation software, hardware robots, things like that. So I I don't think people fully appreciate how quickly this is coming. And in Silicon Valley, people generally like to think on like a systems level, which is part of, you know, what it means to be an engineer or a technologist. But I was, you know, getting questions from people like, okay, well, what do I tell my kid to major in in school? Or like, is my job going to get automated? Yeah, you you were trying to be practical on a useful level. And I, I will be the first to say, that one, I got that question a lot on the trail. And two, that my book does not even attempt to answer that question. <laughs> well, you, you were taking a different approach. And I think we need both. I mean, with you know, I compare it to something like climate change, where like you need people thinking at the policy level about, you know, what kind of tax structure do we, you know, do we need cap and trade? Do we need, you know, carbon credits? Do we need, you know, what kind of, how can we address this at the macro level? But you also need to, someone to be saying, you know, maybe don't buy that, you know, beachfront development in Miami, because that's all going to be underwater. Um, And here are the things you can do in your own life, whether it's buying an electric car or something like that to sort of decrease your own uh, contributions to climate change. So that was sort of the the approach I took was like the kind of ultra personal, ultra applicable, practical advice for people to deal with this in their own lives. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. I think I've seen different quotes saying something like we're going uh, forward a matter of years and a matter of weeks or months because um, uh, of COVID. What have you seen um, that maybe some other folks might have read about in passing um, uh, in terms of what's happening economy wide uh, in the labor market? Well, there, I think there are a couple things happening and there are a couple reasons behind that acceleration. One is I think the the pandemic accelerated the demand for robots, software products, you know, factories needed to keep producing goods, even if their employees were, you know, didn't want to be in the factory. Um, You know, FedEx, uh, Tyson, the meat processor, they, lots of companies sort of brought in robots to sort of meet demand, even while their employees, some of them were out sick. Um, And then you had this, the second reason, which was that the actual technology was just moving forward. I mean, we've had um, this is a super fast moving area of tech. In the past 18 months, we've had new um, advances in robotics, um, in the sort of robot arms that can pick things in warehouses. Um, that's taken a big step forward. These large language models like GPT-3, which are coming out of AI labs and threatened to replace, frankly, me. <laughs> so GPT-3, it's like a nat- natural language uh, AI that can produce simple journalistic accounts. You know, people might have seen it online. Yeah, not even simple journalistic accounts. The Guardian uh, wrote an op-ed a few months ago using GPT-3, and there was a there was a, an editor's note at the end of the article that said this article was actually easier to edit than a lot of op-eds that we get from humans. Um, so it's, it's, it's getting fairly sophisticated. And then I think the third thing that the pandemic did was that it gave corporate executives cover to do the kinds of automation that they had wanted to do for years, but had waited on because they didn't want to be seen as job killers. So I talked to a number of executives and consultants who said, you know, we could have automated our call center five years ago, um, but we didn't want to do that because, you know, it wouldn't save us that much money. And it was, you know, sort of marginal, but also, you know, people might our workers might get scared that their jobs were going away. Um, but during COVID, kind of all bets were off. And so a lot of companies called up their consultants and said, hey, let's let's do that automation project we talked about. Well, part of it, too, is there were consumer preferences where like in the old days, if, if you had like the self-driving pizza delivery vehicle uh, or the, the self-checkout or the cleaning robots, then and you're a customer, you're like, oh, it's a little bit uh, spooky or, or eerie. But now you're like, ooh, if you were a human... Uh, hands touched my thing like you know that that's a win um so i i think it gave them cover in, in multiple ways totally yeah so so mckinsey called this the great acceleration and they said it's basically they they um revised their estimate of how many uh, workers would be displaced by ai and automation by the end of the decade and before the pandemic it was 37 million and now they've changed that to 45 million Another 8 million jobs. Uh, thank you, McKinsey, for cataloging uh, our uh, disastrous times. Where would we be without McKinsey telling us how bad it's going to get? An extra 8 million jobs lost um, by decade's end uh, is enormous. Um, I, I was struck by um, 
what you called uh, robotic process automation or RPA. It's this very boring acronym, um, but it turns out it touches a lot, a lot of things and that uh, companies are like, ooh, like I, I, I can uh, invest in these RPA uh, bots uh, very often um, and they just end up um, simplifying processes and saving money. Yeah, the, the chapter in the book is called uh, Beware of Boring Bots. Because I think yes. when, when we think of automation and the, the risky kinds of AI, we think about, you know, Skynet or, you know, RoboCop. Dude, or... I had the same freaking problem all the time on the trail. <laughs> I had to constantly be like, look, it's not like a robot's going to show up to your office <laughs> right. and replace you. Right. It doesn't work quite like that. Right. So, and, and the... RPA thing is fascinating because RPA robotic process automation is like the most boring part of the of the AI industry. Like it is, it is the least sexy. You know, they don't win prizes. It's basically software programs that can be installed inside large corporations to do the work that you know Phil in accounting used to do. Um, it can you know process invoices and approve expense reports and, you know, plug into databases. and Think, think Dunder Mifflin. Think all the people hanging out in that office. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So now if they made the office in 2021, it would just be like four RPA bots um, talking to each other. Um, but I, I was fascinated by this because I didn't basically know it existed. And I started going to all these conferences and talking to all these executives in the RPA market. And they are really blunt um, about the fact that this technology is replacing people. I mean, there, there was one thing that was called like the boomer remover, which is so dark. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh because it was literally, it's like, hey, we can replace an elderly worker. Yeah, this was a guy I met at a cocktail party in San Francisco and he came up to me and introduced himself when he said, you know, I've got this AI software called the boomer remover. And uh, it, it basically lets companies replace sort of middle managers. Um, and he was very proud of that. And I was thinking to myself, like, this is going to be a total disaster. I had sort of the same feeling that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing you had early in your, your sort of conversion on this stuff where it's like, oh, man, if there's one of these people selling boomer remover software, there's got to be thousands of them. And this is happening all over the economy. And, and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the moments for me was talking to a very high-end venture capitalist based in Boston who was like, yeah, about two-thirds of the stuff I'm seeing is, is going to um, get rid of significant numbers of jobs. And I was like, well, you're literally someone who's just staring at uh, the system. And it, and it made sense to me too intuitively that uh, the low-hanging fruit for a lot of tech companies is going to be saving labor costs because you have to try and show uh, where your uh, financial returns are going to come from. Um, and imagining that the, all of the financial returns are going to come from these you know, blue sky. <laughs> like, I mean, it made much more sense to me that you could uh, replace Phil, <laughs> and then and then there are a million Phils, um, and that's enough to to grow some very very significant companies. Um, so we all had our our moments, Kevin. Uh, and um, I just want to dig into something you just said, which is interesting. So you're a New York Times tech reporter, and you go to conferences. Um, like, how does that work? Are you like, hey, I want to go to this conference? <laughs> and then when you get there, are you media? Like, uh, like do people react to you? Like, they're just pitching you their stuff because they want um, publicity for their company? It, it works a lot of ways. I mean, this was pre-COVID, obviously, when there actually were conferences. Now I just show up on Zoom. Um, but pre-COVID, you know, I would go because I was covering it or there was a talk I wanted to hear or I was on a panel or speaking. Um, but conferences are where a lot of this stuff happens. Um or at least where it's announced. And so, um, 
you know, there's a scene in the uh, in the book where I, I I went to Davos, which is like I don't know if you have you ever been to Davos. I have not been to Davos, Kevin. Oh, man. Tell us more. Well, like, it is da- Davos seemed like a trip. <laughs> so Davos is like the I call it the Coachella of capitalism. It's like this you know week long retreat in the Swiss Alps where all these CEOs and billionaires and heads of state get together. And, um, you know, people, celebrities go and they fly their private jets in. And it's like the biggest, most gaudy, um, you know, conference that basically ever has existed. And um, I was, I've only been the one time, this was in in 2019, but the thing that I was struck by was how different the, um, the conversations that I heard were that were on the record and off the record. So like during the day, how Davos works You mean works is, the masters of the universe don't sound exactly the same <laughs> when a microphone is on and when they're at the bar, Kevin? No, it was like a total 180. <laughs> and maybe I'm naive because I was just shocked. But like during the day, they would have all these panels and they would talk about, you know, oh, we're doing human-centered automation to, you know, free up workers and bring in, you know, prosperity. And this is going to be great for everyone. And then at night, I would like go to these dinners and I would sit next to, you know, the CEO of some Fortune 500 company. And he'd be like grilling the guy next to him who, you know, worked at some tech company about like, how can I get rid of my back office? Um, And so it was really stark um, and really frightening how eager the corporate executives were to just get rid of as many people as possible. And like the, the, you know this, but the classic comeback, the classic thing that people say is, well, you know, technology has always gotten rid of jobs, but it always creates more jobs. Um, and so I started looking at that and, and found that, that that really, the evidence for that just really isn't there this time. So lazy, man. It, it infuriated me. Again, people who are supposed to be pretty, pretty analytical would just bust shit out of me. And I'd be like, look, if someone walked into your office um, and busted out a 120 year old fact pattern on you, you'd like throw them out. You'd be like, well, I've got some like, you know, I've got like a buggy whip case study. <laughs> you'd be like, oh, I should invest for sure. Like the whole thing just struck me as so uh, self-serving and ridiculous and lazy. You, you could imagine, like I did get that an, an awful lot. Um, that's quite dark that the, but not surprising to me again, that the conversations in private were so different from the panels. Give us some more Davos dirt uh kevin it'll be fun oh my god yeah it's hilarious so i was i was there as a journalist and the way that davos works is there's like a is like a hierarchy of badge colors so like if you are like a, a like a inner circle like super elite um you get like one i forget which color it is it's like a pink badge or something like that a gold badge or something and then there's sort of six or seven tiers below that and i was like you know press is like the lowest tier <laughs> and so there are a lot of things that you know you just can't get into as a journalist um but there are some things that you can get into and so i i managed to weasel my way into some some uh pretty funny uh events but it's basically it's this whole sort of do gooder ethos and you know, everyone there is, you know, interested in humanitarian pursuits and philanthropy. And like, it's sort of, um, that's the Davos that you see. And then the one that you don't see is like everyone just getting like drunk at night and, you know, gossiping and, and hanging out with celebrities. And uh, it's sort of a big party. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep 
lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So now we turn to the personal useful advice you would give to someone who is looking up, listening to this podcast and saying, oh, wow, uh, Yang um, has been talking about this for a while. Kevin Roos is uh, another person who knows um, what's happening um, on the ground uh, in tech. Um, so there is cause for concern, uh, but Kevin's here with his book to actually try and guide people in the right direction. Um, and so you have nine rules uh, that people can follow. And I found some of them to be um, really affecting, particularly the the one, and you probably know this, the one around how our phones are reprogramming our, our brain, <laughs> our brains, which they are. Um, but the, the first rule you propose is be surprising, social, and scarce. Uh, what do you mean by that? So this rule came out of conversations I had with people who work on AI. And I went to them and I asked them, okay, what can humans do that computers can't do? Like, what, what is AI just, like, not very good at? Because it seemed to me that we've sort of, that, that that's where the future is going to be for us, is we need to do the things that machines aren't very good at. Um, and so they told me that basically there were three categories of things that AI was pretty terrible at. Um, one is, is tasks that are surprising. So artificial intelligence... Uh, algorithms, machine learning, they, they really like structured, regular problems. So this is why, you know, they're very good at playing chess, for example, because it has consistent rules. It's sort of a bounded universe. And it's not, it, the rules are the same every time. They don't change a lot. So humans, by contrast, we're really good at doing things that are surprising, that involve sort of new situations and, and sort of coming up with creative solutions to chaotic problems. Um, so like an AI would be a horrible kindergarten teacher because that's just like a job that like is all surprises and all chaos. Um, so that's the first kind of thing I think we as humans should focus on is doing things that are not routine and repetitive. Um, and so the second category is social jobs. Um, these are pretty safe from automation. And those are jobs that you know, that you've talked a lot about a lot in your work, but they're the jobs that involve not making things, but making people feel things. So, you know, your nurses, your therapists, your, your, um, you know, your, your clergy, um, your teachers, but also jobs that are, are not 
we don't think of as being sort of social jobs, but that have a strong social component, like bartenders. Um, I suspect that if even if there are robot bartenders who can pour drinks, you know, it's the reason you like going to a bar is not because the drinks are so good. It's because you get to talk to humans, and that's a big part of what makes that job um, hard to automate. Um, and then the third category would be scarce jobs, which are jobs that are basically. Um, you know, involve rare skills, combinations of skills, people who are excellent at their in their fields, and also jobs that sort of you really, really need them to be done right the first time. There's not a whole lot of margin for error. So an example of this is the you know when you call nine one one to report an emergency, a human picks up the phone, and it's not because we don't know how to automate those jobs. It's because when you're in trouble, you don't want to have to wade through a phone menu. You want to talk to a human right away. And so those are the jobs that we've sort of decided as a society should be done by humans, even if machines can do them just as well. One of the categories that uh, I talked about on the trail is uh, non-routine manual. Um, And and I made a couple of examples. I said, look, you're not going to have an Edward Scissorhands robot uh, virtually ever. (laughs) You know, it's like you don't think of hairdresser or stylist um, uh, as something um, that obviously involves like like a ton of um, education or credentialing, but it's very, very safe and resilient uh, because of some of the social aspects you're talking about, but also um, just that, you know, like there, there are a lot of non-routine uh, manual jobs that will be with us for quite some time. And a lot of them do have a social component and maybe there's some surprise involved with them too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one one job that I, I sort of am fascinated by is the, um, the barista. I mean, this is a job that should have been automated 60 years ago. Um, it's, you know, we all have machines called coffee makers in our house. Um, they make pretty good coffee. And so you would expect that, you know, coffee shops that sold coffee would be, you know, a sort of dying breed. And yet in any major city, there's a coffee shop on every corner. And why is that? It's because it's not actually just about the coffee. It's about the human interaction, the connection, the talking to people, the sort of atmosphere. Uh, It's an experience rather than a a, a purchasing a good. Your next suggestion is to resist machine drift. Um, uh, And this is about how machines are kind of guiding our behaviors in different ways. Yeah, so machine drift is the name that I gave to this feeling that I kept having. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm. You a, made it up, Kevin. Machine drift is your thing. We could like make it a thing. Yeah, we could sell merch. The idea was that there are all these ways in which we are being sort of subtly influenced by non-human forces. So, you know, I am a tech writer. I have so many gadgets in my house. I use every app. That is dangerous, man, because then you justify yourself like, oh, it's my job. Exactly. So every day I, you know, I wake up, I check Twitter, I talk to, you know, my, uh, my, uh, my Alexa, I play my Spotify playlist that's automatically generated. So I'm interacting with like probably a dozen AIs like before I have my morning cup of coffee. And, um, and a few years ago, I started realizing like this wasn't really making me happier or more efficient. What it was doing is like changing my behavior and my preferences. And I would, you know, I would get, uh, I I subscribe to this like algorithmic wardrobe service. This is like pretty dystopian, but there were, you know, there are these services where you can go and, and they'll, you know, you put in your dimensions and your sizes and they, you know, analyze your style and then they send you a box of sort of clothes that were picked out by an algorithm. And you, so I was like letting an, I, I, I did that for a while and I was letting an algorithm dress me and I would have these moments where I was like, I don't even like the way this thing looks, but I'm wearing it because the algorithm told me to. <laughs> so it was a real moment of like, 
I have drifted toward this, these machines without Who are you to it. put your taste above the algorithm, Kevin? Come on. <laughs> was that shirt picked out for you by, by an algorithm? This shirt was picked out for me um, months ago by someone who worked on my campaign, and now I've got a dozen of them, and so I just wear the same shirt all the time. It's really not great. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't an algorithm. It was a human. Nice. Yeah. Exactly. Triumph of humanity. <laughs> Andrew's uh, you know, ubiquitous blue shirt. Exactly. So this was sort of the 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 way in for me to talk about this this sort of sensation of algorithmic influence. Well, I, I think I think a lot of us have had that drift feeling. I mean, the the most straightforward time is when you're just like, you know, on on YouTube or some site and it just keeps feeding you stuff, and you're just like, do do. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. And and it's also it's not just about clothes and you know YouTube videos. It's like this is affecting our politics. This is affecting you know how we the content see we ourselves see sure. yeah. um it's affecting our identities and so um the reason i wanted to address this in in the book is because i think that in order to be more human which is what i think we need to do um when machines take over more and more of of the things we used to do um but in order to be more human, we have to know what we're trying to preserve. You have to know who you actually are, what you actually believe, what preferences are actually yours, and which were put there by Instagram and Amazon and Spotify. That's very deep, my friend. Very profound. I know. So, so that's my attempt to sort correct. of say, like, we sh- we have to like get ourselves under control. Like, put your put your own oxygen mask on first. Um, that's sort of the the approach that I'm taking. Wow. And so um, one of the uh, oxygen masks you suggest is to try to uh, discipline your device usage. Uh, and, if, and you wrote a story that apparently caught fire where you talked about trying to um, change a relationship with your smartphone in particular, which I can understand why it's so popular, because I think a lot of us have uh, a relationship with our smartphone that we are not excited about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this was written before, that part was written before COVID. Um, and it's funny, I was reading back through it the other day. And um, there's a statistic in there where I said I was, I was, you know, expressing my horror at the fact that I was on my phone for six hours a day, according to my screen time statistics. And then, you know, like, I feel like that that no longer registers as alarming, because during the pandemic, we're all on our screens much more than that. Um, but this is also a piece of of the sort of future-proofing yourself because you know it's not about how much you use your phone but it is about how much power you delegate to your phone um i remember when i got my first smartphone it was a blackberry and it was cool it was like a tool it was like you could use it for all kinds of things um but now with how sophisticated our smartphones are like every time you open your smartphone and you open a social media app or 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 you use it um in any way like there are billions of dollars in r&d and you know dozens of PhDs in artificial intelligence who are pointing a supercomputer right at you and trying to influence what you think and believe and how you act. Um, And so putting the phone back in its rightful place as an assistant rather than a boss is, uh, is part of what I'm trying to encourage people to do here. One of the things I adopted a while ago was sleeping in a different room as my cell phone, which is something you recommend as well. Um, but you had more recommendations than that. Um, like, uh, have a rubber band uh, on the phone um, to try and introduce friction. Like, what what were the other steps? Yeah, so the rubber band was was first, and that doesn't you know that doesn't really change anything about the phone, but it does make it a little harder to use, um, which is sort of the point, just to kind of notice it. Um, and I worked with a phone coach. I had a, a woman named Catherine Price who 
uh, is sort of an expert in phone detoxes. And so she was sort of my personal, uh, uh, you know, guru on this. What, what is her website? Because there's some people listening to this that are like, I totally want to do this. <laughs> yeah, well, her, her book is called um, How to Break Up with Your Phone. And uh, it's a great book. And she's got a, another one out now that's called Screen Life Balance. Um, and she's amazing. And, and she really helped me sort of recognize how big a problem I had and, and then, you know, go through the steps to fix it. Um, but it's really about using your phone, not necessarily less, but just in a more mindful way and not just to reaching for it because you're bored or you you can't be alone with your thoughts. Well, I, I had one experience that certainly uh, hit me, which is that uh, I was with my family, which when I was running for president was like a very rare thing. But then, you know, like the, this was um, after I came off the trail. Um, and then I saw something on social media that um, bothered me and put me in a bad mood. And then uh, when I was doing something with my kids, I like wasn't enjoying it properly because uh, of the thing. And then I was like, wait a minute what is going on here? Like I'm letting uh, like this thing I saw on social media on my phone, like uh, mess with my family time in a way that frankly, when I was on the trail, I would have like, you know, like given anything to have this kind of family time because I, I was away so much. And then here I was like misusing it because of some, some, something like that someone I never met. I like, <laughs> like, 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 and that really hit home for me. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to change my ways here because like, you know, this is unacceptable. Um, it, I think a lot of folks, uh, if you haven't had that kind of experience, kudos to you. <laughs> but, uh, but I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Catherine, my, my phone coach told me um, that really stuck with me is she said, your life is what you pay attention to. Um, and I think about that all the time, because I think we have really devalued our own attention. Um, you know, we look at our phones hundreds of times a day, they tell us what to think, you know, when to think it, they sort of, they, they are our ultimate task schedulers. Um, and I think there's a process that a lot of us have gone through of realizing exactly what you realize, which is like, oh, I am not in control of my own attention anymore. And trying to get some of that back is, is part of what I think we, we need to do. Now, there's another term in your book that I enjoyed called fubbing, which is short for phone snubbing, um, which is when you're with a loved one, but you're just staring at your phone instead of your loved one, um, which I will confess like has happened uh, occasionally in uh, the Yang household. Um, so, so I think that's another, um, yellow flag for someone when like you look over at your loved one, uh, or they look at you and you're both just heads down. Totally. And that's, it's not just like rude, although it is definitely like rude and, and, and like people, you know, rightly call me on it, including my wife when I do it. Um, but it's also depriving us of these kind of emotional skills that we need to build in order to distinguish ourselves from machines. Um, there have been studies that find that, you know, people who even just having your phone on the table um, next to you when you're having a meal with someone, even if it's not ringing, even if, even if it's on do not disturb, just even having it there like dramatically reduces your ability to listen uh, and it decreases your enjoyment of the time that you're spending with that person. One of the, the principles you, you put out is to uh, leave handprints, which I enjoyed. Uh, this was like trying to leave an imprint that um, like the, the machine couldn't, uh, trying to humanize something that you're doing. 
Um, and, and this, I think, could help a lot of people um, uh, keep their roles from being automated by trying to see where they can actually inject more humanity. Yeah, this was one of the biggest questions I had going in was like, what are people doing? You know, because there are there are people whose jobs, frankly, should have been automated all throughout history, uh, and, but they never were for some reason. And so those kind of like unlikely survivors. And I wanted to try to find their stories and figure out what had actually allowed them to keep their jobs and their relevance, um, even as technology, you know, supposedly made them obsolete. And so I started finding a lot of stories like that from, you know, people who were, you know, uh, you know, 18th or, you know, 19th century factory workers and, and, and people who, you know, survived the Industrial Revolution, um, people in car factories in the 1960s who were able to survive that. And then I found people who were doing that kind of thing today. Like the example I use in the book is, is my accountant. Um, and, you know, if you think of accountants, you think that job probably got automated because TurboTax, you know, made, made it obsolete. And, but he's thriving. And, and one of the reasons he's thriving is that he's a former stand-up comedian. And he hires other accountants who are former comedians and, and entertainers. And he pays for them all to get improv comedy classes um, because he thinks it makes them better at relating to clients. And as a result, like, it's really fun to do your taxes. Like, people do not believe me when I say that I have fun talking with my accountant. Well, the funniest thing is that his name is actually funny. Uh, it was like Brass Taxes. Was that what Yeah, it's, it? it's Brass Taxes. And, um, and, you know, he's just a great example of how you can stay afloat in an industry that has been rapidly automated in the most boring industry alive by by being a human and that's i think what's happening to people in a lot of fields is they're having to lean more on their human skills because you know just being a talented accountant probably isn't enough to to keep you relevant um, just being a talented you know radiologist in the future you know when ai is reading all of our all of our scans um being a talented radiologist is not going to cut it. You'll also have to bring some human skills to the table. So I think we, we need to work on those skills because what happened to accountants is going to happen to journalists and professors and artists. Um, there, there are no sort of robot-proof jobs. I had an experience on the trail that this reminded me of, Kevin, um, where I was running for president. Um, most people were ignoring me <laughs> at that um, and that every once in a while, when we had a breakthrough, um, it would be because I did something very human, sometimes something that I frankly found like uncomfortable or um, embarrassing. Um, but then um, if it happened enough, then I started, you know, obviously adapting. Um, and I'll actually describe this to you because you probably don't know this. So I uh, started running for president 2018. And it is a slog. Like no one cares. No one's paying attention. A lot of people are kind of bemused. Uh, we're not able to raise much money. Like, you know, very, very limited press. And a lot of it is because in 2018, no one was talk, uh, talking about the presidential election. So I was like, you know, way, way ahead of the curve. It was very difficult. Uh, and then in 2019, we started doing better. Um, and um, there were a number of kind of uh, social media moments that some people might remember. Um, one was me crowd surfing. Uh, another one was me doing the Cupid shuffle. Uh, and, and there were other things that genuinely at the time I was like a little bit uncomfortable about where I was like, uh, well, you know, like I, I seem 
like kind of a goof. <laughs> but then I would do a major news interview and they would just be asking me about that and not whatever, you know, policy platform I'd, I'd put out. Um, and so, you know, again, you start adapting. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I think I can actually relate somewhat to what you're arguing for about trying to lean into your hum humanity. Um, because when I was on the trail and I was trying to be all, uh, frankly, um, you know, putting out very big ideas and policies out there, uh, people wouldn't pay as much attention than if I was, um, you know, like jazzercising or, or, or whatever the heck it, um, like the example is. Yeah, totally. And I, I remember from your campaign, I mean, I, I remember during one of the debates, um, you were up there and, and you were you know up there with a lot of the other sort of Democrats in the primary. And I, I, a friend who knew that I knew you um, texted me and it says, like, he seems like the only human up there because, you know, you weren't like, super polished you didn't you know you weren't like giving well rehearsed like you were you were saying things that were that were you know grammatically correct and 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 true for the most part <laughs> but like but like you weren't it wasn't like you were reading off a teleprompter and so much of of what i think made your candidacy appealing to people was that you were able to just kind of like talk like a human and and act like a human and not some like you know political automaton like built in a lab and I think that's really instructive for for not just people running for office, but for people in all kinds of fields. Um, yeah, I, I think your um, your ability to sort of be a human and talk like a human and relate to people like a human is is really um, an underrated uh, thing. And it's really it's it's not easy to do when everyone's you know trying to train that out of you. Um, but you you were able to do it. Yeah, it was an adaptation. It took me about a year uh, because. You know, necessity is the mother of invention and all that. <laughs> um, but I'm really glad your friend sent you that. I mean, that, that's, that's super gratifying. There was an, another idea in your book that was very, very important, I thought. I mean, there are a lot of important ideas, you can tell. Um, but one was about people innovating better when they're physically proximate to each other. Um, and so you quote a number of people, the CEO of Adobe, uh, Shantanu Nar Narayan, um, says that when you're trying to create a new project, you want people around that water cooler. Uh, and uh, there was a study that said that even academics uh, tended to produce better research when they were located uh, closer to each other. And I thought this was such like a, an important counter argument to like the Zoom moment we're in. Um, and apparently you'd even written a bunch of a chapter that you then had to rewrite or discard because of, <laughs> of COVID when you were like, you know, in-person collaboration is where it's at. Um, but would, would love for you to unpack a bit about um, what you found on how people uh, are the most productive or happy uh, in terms of uh, work environments. Yeah, well, there's, the chapter you talk about was was um, in the pre-COVID version of the book, and and it was all about how sort of remote work is a trap for workers because um, it's a trap. When you say that, it's like <laughs> like uh, you know Star Wars. Well, yeah. So so the research is actually fairly clear on this question. Um, studies have found over and over again that remote workers are more productive than people in an office uh, on average in part because, you know, they're not spending two hours a day commuting, they're not distracted, you know, it's, it's much easier to be productive when you're 
at home. I guess we should say like this was before COVID when people's kids were crawling all over them and stuff. But in general, workers who work from home um, are more productive, but they're less creative. It's harder for them to sort of collaborate on big projects, to come up with new ideas. And this has been known in the corporate world for a long time. It's why, you know, Google and Apple and Facebook and all these tech companies that literally build the tools that remote workers use, they have giant corporation offices in Silicon Valley where tens of thousands of people come to work every day, again, pre-COVID. And that's because they understand that good ideas come in many cases from these kind of random collisions between people, um, from being in the same place, thinking about things, sitting in conference rooms together, um, the kind of moments between meetings. um, That's where a lot of the sort of innovation happens. Um, So I think that's part of what worries me about this shift to remote work um, that we're seeing now with COVID is um, it seems to be working for some people, but like I feel less creative when I'm at home than when I'm in a newsroom with, you know, my colleagues making phone calls and, you know, talking over, you know, talking and, and I can hear their conversations and it might strike some idea. Um, and so I think remote workers have to be very careful not to let themselves get um, sort of dehumanized by that process. Um, and there are some tips in the book for how to do that. But I think that's really important because in a sense, like remote, remote workers are kind of halfway automated already. Um, and so I think wow. That's such a powerful statement. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. It's like you are visible to your team mostly as sort of a name in their inbox or a Slack, you know, username. The way to measure your productivity is by like the number of tasks you complete. And you miss out on a lot of those kind of like moments between tasks that, you know, the experience of being in an office, of making relationships, of, you know, building trust of mentoring people, the kind of softer parts of the office experience are actually really, really important. Um, So I think workers, including me, who are working remotely right now, are going to have some sort of rehumanizing to do when, when all this is over and we can go back to the office. So you hear that, people, when the heads of various departments are like, hey, why don't you back in the office? Like, don't reflexively be like, no, no, no. Like, maybe heading back is actually, maybe they're looking out for you. Maybe by having you back in the office, uh, you're going to have all different ways to add value that would not be possible over Zoom. Huh? Huh? I mean, I I, I genuinely believe this uh, because I've been in a number of organizations. And the argument I make, which is very similar to the argument you're making, though you're, you're making it and yours is based on data. Um, uh, around the fact that creative collaborative work is just better in person and studies bear that out. Uh, the thing that I'm arguing for is somewhat similar, which is that it's very hard to build a culture remotely. And if you're going to try and cultivate younger workers and uh, have them become important parts of your org and then eventually become managers and leaders, I think you need to have them in the office. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, someone joked with me and said it's very hard to get promoted over Zoom. Yeah. Totally. And I think that's what I've been hearing from remote workers since the pandemic started. I mean, obviously, we should say, like, people should not rush back to the office until it's safe to do so and all the vaccines are out. Um, like, there's no reason to jeopardize your safety to, to go to an office. But I, I do think a lot of companies are going to find that maybe they didn't come up with as many new innovations during the pandemic. Maybe, they're, maybe their creativity suffered a little bit. Maybe they're not... Um, you know, having as many sort of breakthroughs. Um, and, I, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see how many companies sort of stay mostly remote and how many companies um, come back to the office and which of them do better. 
Yeah, I, I genuinely think there's going to be a competitive advantage over time uh, to organizations that have uh, more face-to-face proximity. Um, to, to me, a lot of it really is about where you are in your career, where if you're a bit older and you've kind of gotten stuff down and then you feel like, okay, I can beam in remotely and, and get stuff. But again, if you're younger and developing, uh, I think um, meeting in person and working in person is vital to, to how people's careers grow and develop. And I think that a lot of this discussion is kind of uh, misleading because a lot of the people who are doing the discussion are frankly in the first category where they're kind of more mature. Totally. And so that so they talk about it like, hey, I can just uh, zoom in. It's like, well, sure, but you've been in, at your job for 18 years. <laughs> totally. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when I started off as, as a journalist and so much of how I learned was just by watching over people's shoulders, by, you know, grabbing them in the in the lunch line and saying, hey, how did you do that? thing, you know, in that paragraph, like just a sort of subtle people watching that you get to do in an office. And I, I'm not sure how I would have gotten those skills if I had just been at home, you know, typing into a laptop. We're grateful that you are where you are, Kevin. Uh, your last big principle I, I uh, thought was super important. I just want you to, to unpack it. It's called arm the rebels. What the heck do you mean by arm the rebels, Kevin Bruce? Well, I, uh, it, it's not as violent as it sounds. Um, I'm a pacifist, uh, so I, I, <laughs> I chose that language um, sort of carefully. But I, I think that one of the ways that we who are not technologists can support the development of ethical um, and, hum- and humanizing technology is by supporting the people inside the tech industry who are working to make it better. Um, there are a lot of examples of this, you know, people at Google and Amazon and Facebook, um, you know, rank and file workers who are trying to do the right thing. And there are also people who are sort of in the tech industry, even if they're not in the sort of biggest companies who are doing startups that are public good startups that are trying to sort of steer technologies like AI in a more humane direction. There are, you know, activists who are trying to you know, get the um, use of facial recognition software by law enforcement um, you know, banned or, or sort of prohibited at a, at a kind of state level. Um, and I think these are important people in the whole picture of technology. I think often we, we think, you know, we forget that those people are there and, um, and they don't get as much attention as the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks, but they're, they're super important. And so I think arming the rebels means figuring out who those people are and supporting them with what they need, whether it's, you know, fundraising or attention. Um, it's why I try to bring attention to some of those people in my times column, because I think it's really important that there be incentives for people to to do this stuff ethically. Try and do the right thing. Because there's so much money in, frankly, doing things as they're currently done. <laughs> so anyone who's trying to go against that grain is really, really swimming against a very powerful current. Yeah, absolutely. But they're there. Well, that, so that's hopeful. Uh, you talk to hundreds of people in tech. Um, like, what proportion of them fall into this category where you see them as uh, activists or trying to improve things? Uh, I don't. I don't know how to put a number on it, but I, I think if I, you know, I think it, it it can be hard to identify them because I think a lot of the executives have learned how to talk like they are ethical technologists. Um, but you really have to look at at actions. I mean, one of the one of the principles I, I look at in the book is this idea of consequentialism of sort of 
the the need for technologists to kind of measure their success not based on how they intended their products to work but on how their products actually work out in the world well right now they're measuring how their products uh performing by uh, engagement and how much money they're making. I don't even know if, if there's like <laughs> like a how it's supposed to work measurement. In right, there. right. But when they're challenged, when you say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, your you know your newsfeed algorithm is is you know tearing society apart or leading to more polarization, the fallback response is always, well, you know, we built this with good intentions. And what I'm trying to tell people is like it doesn't matter. Like your intentions are are it's good that if they're good. But what ultimately matters is how this technology is applied out in the world. And, you know, that's a very strange standard, man. Like if I'm a doctor and then I do something messed up and then, um, you know, it's like I you know, like whatever, I operate on the wrong leg and then there'd be like, hey, that was the wrong leg. Be like, well, I intended it to be the right leg. <laughs> I mean, right. That, that's, not, that's not exactly like a compelling uh, argument in just about any field. Right. But you hear that all the time in tech. And I think it's really ingrained in them that as long as you have good intentions, your job is just to create the technology and how people use it is up to them. Uh, that is not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they definitely should be um, measuring uh, impact and then say like, hey, is this impact working or not working? Certainly, I'm very passionate about a lot of the, the stuff you're writing about in part because I can see the impact as uh being very negative in, in some respects. Um, and you can see it with the eroding mental health of uh, various people, particularly teenage girls, um, in response to uh, some of the, the social media apps that we're using. Um, and you'll never see that show up in anyone's financial statement. Um, but it's, it's destructive and devastating to certain uh, people in certain families. They're, they're growing negative externalities with a, a lot of our use of technology that, again, like we're not measuring correctly. If you were to incorporate that measurement, then things would look different. Um, but these tech companies, um, as you're, you're as you're describing, like don't feel themselves be particularly culpable for some of the negative externalities because they're like, well, you know, we wanted to build something awesome, we made a lot of money, uh, and and if there's something less than awesome going on, um, you can like we can make some uh, good sounding noises at like a. Uh, panel and then all will be well and you're just like well that didn't really solve the problem yeah well i i i'm actually like more optimistic on this front than i used to be and and i i think because i'm meeting so many of these sort of rebels um i i know that there are people who are pushing for for change in a good direction and historically i i for this book i went back and i read a lot about the first industrial revolution the second industrial revolution the third industrial revolution and in each of those there were people who were agitating to make humans' lives better as a result of this new technology and not just use it to enrich executives and shareholders. Um, there are people in every technological age who are not anti-tech. It doesn't mean being anti-tech. It doesn't mean being anti-automation. It doesn't mean being a Luddite. What it means is all these technologies can improve humans' lives or they can make them worse. And there are people in the industry and outside of the industry who are trying to make the best version of this technology for the age that we're living in and that's coming up. Well, kudos to you for being one of the conscientious voices uh, that in your case, I mean, you cover the tech industry, but uh, you, you in many ways represent uh, the way a lot of people will understand the tech industry given your uh, prominence as um, 
one of the foremost tech journalists at the New York Times. So the book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Uh, and Kevin, you have your own podcast. Um, if people want to follow you and all of your learnings, uh, where, where, where can they go? Uh, well, they can go to my website, kevinroos.com, or there's a we special website just for the book called futureproofthebook.com. And you can follow him on social media. He's a very good follow. He's constantly sharing uh, nuggets of insight about what's coming down the pike. I learned a lot from Kevin Roos. I hope you did too on this podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate the heck out of you. And thank you for con this massive contribution with this book. May it help many, many people. Thank you so much. It's really, it's a pleasure to talk. 